It's not a reminder so much. Uh, we will not be meeting in this forum next Saturday. Next Saturday, I'm doing. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Harlan, I, I muted okay, you. That's quite okay. I'm that's sorry. I'm okay, sorry thank I'm you. I'm supposed <laughs> to be we, I'm going to be doing on Zoom the Region 3 Convention Big Book Study, which will be Friday night, the 7th of August, all day Saturday, the 8th of August, and then Sunday morning, the 9th of August. There is going to be me doing Big Book, but there's also going to be an opening speaker and a uh, closing speaker, and uh, there'll be different things going on. Um, I can't speak to the quality of it. Uh, I don't know. Some of the speakers are better than others. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know who's doing what. But this is what I can tell you. It's going to be good. Um, it's $25, and you, you get information. You can go to oaphoenix.org, oaphoenix, or Arizona Serenity and the Desert Intergroup, which is harder to remember, just put in oaphoenix.org and that should get you right to it. And then you can uh, register for this convention um, with PayPal or a credit card or what have you. Uh, you don't have to do that, that's okay. I'm just letting you know what's going on. So we will not be meeting on this forum next Saturday, okay. We have been studying, we have been looking at a chapter that is extremely vital to our information, to our understanding of step one. Step one is the powerless condition of mind and body. And although we get essential information from the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, and there is a solution, we are going to look specifically, not only at the progressive nature of the disease, but we're gonna look at the permanent nature of the disease and the fatal nature, unfortunately, of the disease as well. And we're gonna be particularly looking at that fatal nature this morning. But just to kind of review, this disease is a physical allergy to certain types of food. I have many friends, and you do too. If you, you remember when you were a kid and you read the comics and you had the thought balloon, the thought balloon, and your friend is thinking about ice cream, just to say ice cream, okay? You're thinking gallon, half gallon, whatever, you know, the whole, the whole Megillah. Your friend is thinking ice cream cone with one scoop, maybe two tops, tops. And once you start eating that ice cream and they start eating that ice cream, they get more satisfied as time, as, as with each lick, with each bite, they're, they're more, they're done. And you don't understand why they're stronger than you. You don't understand why they're better than you at fighting off their urge to eat more ice cream. Well, here's the secret. Don't tell anybody. They don't have an urge to eat more ice cream. Every time they took that lick, every time they took that bite of ice cream, it drew them closer and closer to not wanting any more. They were, they've had their fill of it and they're done. 
with me and I assume with you because you're on the line this morning, you want more and more and more and more with each passing lick, with each passing uh, mouthful that you take of it, you want more and more rather than less and less. This is the result of the physical allergy. Now let's take a look at what starts the process is the mental twist. The mental twist is looking for a solution. Hold on just a second. It's only gonna be 118 degrees here today in Arizona. So I'm drinking a lot of ice water today, but it's gonna be 118 before everything is said and done. The upside to that is the next 30,000 year forecast, no snow, no ice, no winter. Thank you, God. Okay, now. What starts the process? What's the most insidious ingredient in this is the mental twist. Also the mental blank spot, the mental twist and the mental blank spot. Let me just take care of something here. I'm going to um, uh, just, just do this for somebody that I know and they are going to join us if they can and I'm going to send that to them. Okay, very good. Now, the bottom line is still, oh, the bottom line is still, there, there's one other component of this that we did not consider very strongly, and that is the mental blank spot, which is the built-in forgetter. And once that mental blank spot is engaged, we can no longer remember what the food does to us. We can only remember what the food does for us. So when I see that ice cream or I see that French fry or I see that whatever that may be, I want it, I want it, I want it. Well, five seconds ago, five minutes ago, I was hoping and praying not to eat any more ice cream, not to eat any more potato chips because I didn't like the way I looked and I didn't like the way I felt and I didn't like what, what it was doing to my body and I didn't like what it was doing to my life. It was ransacking me and it was vandalizing and it was committing arson to every dream I've ever dreamed and it was, it was making everything in my life putrid. It was putrefying my life. And then three seconds later, there I was. So if we have this physical allergy and we have the mental twist aided and abetted by its, its sidekick, the mental blank spot, that is an explanation of step one. But in more about alcoholism, we're going to take an actual deeper level look. We're going to take a level of looking at this that has not been examined yet. And what we're going to focus on and what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the way that the big book utilized Richard Peabody's book that came out in 1930. Richard Peabody, who was an alcoholic, wrote a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. And in The Common Sense of Drinking, Richard Peabody is going to describe to us what he thinks and what he sees as the three characteristics of the disease. The characteristics of the disease, as I said before, are it is permanent, it never goes away. It is progressive, it gets worse over time, never better. And it is fatal. 
So with those things in mind, we're going to look now at page 32. <sighs> Sorry. We're going to look at page 32. And what we're going to delve into is we're going to delve into the first of the stories in this chapter. Now, the man of 30, Fred, and Jim, and the Jaywalker, and all these various stories are here to teach us lessons about these various things. And we're going to take a very in-depth look at these things. And the first thing that we're going to look at here is we're going to see, based on the common sense of drinking, we're going to see that in the common sense of drinking, there was a story about a man who wanted to make a million dollars. And as a million dollars, he, this, not as a million dollars, a million dollars was his goal. That's what he wanted. And he promised himself, he made himself a deal that once he made a million dollars, he would go back to drinking. And we're going to find out what happened in that, in that scenario here in just a minute. We're on page 32 and we're on the paragraph, though there is no way of proving it near the top of the page though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking, but the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there's yet time. Now, this is something that you are not gonna hear me say very often. The, the two paragraphs, the two areas where I say it is in the paragraph where it says into the, uh, it says, the use of chocolate is effective. Well, if I'm going to use chocolate, I'm not going to be around for very much longer. And I don't think most of you would have tuned in this morning to hear what I had to say about anything, except maybe the difference between Mounds bars and Almond Joy bars, or maybe the difference between one Reese's piece, uh, Reese's peanut butter cup variety and another Reese's peanut butter cup variety, but I wouldn't have much to say. This is what I know based on my memory and my experience, and this is what I know based on what my mother and father both told me before I died. They both told me that for as far back as I had language, I demanded more and more food, and that before I, um, before I had language, before I had it, I would cry and cry and cry. And often the only thing that would calm me down would be for them to feed me something, for them to give me something that they knew that I liked. And that was the only way that I would get calmed down. So I believe that I came out of the box, I came out of my mother already past this line that they're talking about. Okay, we have heard of a few instances where people who show definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here is one. Now, I had lots of overpowering desires to do so. Yesterday morning, I had a cardiology appointment. And there were two things or three things in life that scared me more than anything else. The fact that I had crushes on girls but couldn't act on it because of my morbid obesity was a, was a huge one. 
I was scared of people. I had a lot of social anxiety. People scared the crap out of me, especially people that I did not know. Uh, if I knew you, it was okay. I was all right with you. But if I didn't know you, I was very, very socially anxious as a little child. And I, I, didn't, I didn't have the ability to interact with people. That really came as a result of my recovery. And what happens in recovery, as I've said on this, in this forum before, places in my life that were vandalized by this disease that have nothing to do with food and weight, places in my life that were vandalized and arsoned and, and destroyed by this disease started to heal and started to get better. And what happened for me is a continuous process of becoming the man that I believe that God had intended me to be all along. But aside from that factor of social anxiety, there were two things that scared me above anything else. Number one, going to a doctor. Every single time I went to the doctor, it was like the trilogy of terror. It was like this unbelievable, horrible moment. And why was because the doctors would scream at my mother and father, and then they would scream at me because they, the doctors have been pronouncing me dead from the time I was a teenager. They have been telling me that I'm going to die imminently. I remember when I was a junior at high school, I went to Mather High School in Chicago, and I, I uh, broke my ankle in gym class. And in those days, the doctor used to cast, your, uh, you, cast you in the emergency room. Now they don't, the doctor isn't even in the room. If they have to cast you now, a nurse does it or some aide or orderly or something. The doctor doesn't do that anymore, for sure. There's no way. Um, but the bottom line is, is that he was casting me and he looked over his glasses. I can see him doing it right now. It was 1971, I was a junior in high school. He looked over his glasses and he said, Virginia, my mother's name was Virginia. You don't hear that name much anymore. He said, Virginia, he's gonna be dead by the time he's 30. He is 17 years old and he's over 300 pounds. And he started screaming at my mother and he started telling my mother that I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, and that you can't feed him like you're feeding him, and you better make sure he doesn't eat french fries and he doesn't eat whatever, pudding and whatever the hell I was eating. And what did me and my mother do on the way home from the hospital, me and my new cast? Hand to God, we went for ice cream. My mother was a compulsive overeater too. Hand to God, we went to ice cream. And then midway through the ice cream, she started yelling at me that tomorrow, young man, you are going on your diet. You are going on a diet tomorrow. Well, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds. I gained 35 pounds over that summer, and I was 335 as a senior in high school. I was 500 pounds by the time I was a sophomore in college. And by the time I graduated college, I was over 600 pounds. So the bottom line is, going to the doctor really scared the daylights out of me. I know we have work to do here, but I just, I want to finish this. Yesterday, the cardiologist had some information about my heart that showed up. I took a test a few months ago 
um, um, image resonant, uh, resonance thing on my heart. And it showed that I have some leakage on the left side. Nobody wants to hear you have a heart that's leaking. That's, that's hard to hear, okay? That's a hard thing to hear. Didn't even seem to upset him at all. He said, but it's nothing to worry about, right? It's fine, it's nothing to worry about. Then he went on to tell me, I mean, I'm, I'm like in the twilight zone. I'm just, he goes, your weight is fine. I'm going, who, who the hell is he talking to? I'm the only one here. Your weight is fine. And I'm looking around like, what the hell? He was talking to me. It was, your weight is okay. He says, I'm a little worried about your blood pressure. It's too low. And I'm thinking to myself, here I am from the time I was 40 and I'm 66. From the time I was 40, I have been on high blood pressure medication. I'm probably going to be off the lisinopril. I'm going to be off the blood pressure medication um, very, very soon. And I'm free to skip days now because I take my own BP. Um, I'm free to skip days if, if it continues to, to be low. I, I, I'm free to just stop. I'm thinking, am I in the twilight zone here? Then he, they give you a sheet of paper to take with you. And on the sheet of paper, there's all kinds of instructions because I have another appointment in January. I go every six months. There's instructions. And you know what it said on the instructions? None. Do what you're doing. None. I'm thinking, am I in the freaking twilight zone here? But that's recovery. That's what the that's what the recovery is. It's not just about losing weight. Guys, if you're just at the beginning, and I know I'm gonna to get to the book, I promise, but I, I really feel compelled to, to spit this out. If you're in the beginning and you're just at that stage now where everything in your recovery and everything between you and your sponsor, you and God is about food and weight, I understand, I've been there, I lived there for years. But there's so much more. There's so much more that God has in store for you. The development that we stymied because of the food now continues to flourish. And when I say the development, I mean the development of us as human beings, of us as adults, of us as people. And this is one of the most beautiful beautiful parts of what this is, is to see ourselves and the people about us to flourish and the, as the men and women that God had intended us to be starts to come out. It's an unbelievable journey. Don't miss it. Now, a man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. Spree just means he was a periodic binger. That's what it means. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. In other words, I ate railroad cars full of Doritos to kill the pain and the shame and the physical pain and the, and the horrible, horrible feeling that I had from eating railroad cars full of Doritos. I ate to kill the pain of eating. And that is just not sane. That's like the man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he cannot feel the ache. And that's exactly what I was doing. And that 
is insane. And we're going to be talking about the word insane and the concept of sanity as we progress in the chapter. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. This is a very aware drunk. This is a very aware, astute alcoholic. Most compulsive overeaters, most alcoholics, most drug addicts and gamblers and sex addicts and love addicts and love avoidance, they cannot see this. This is a very, very uh, unusual drunk. Once he started, he had no control whatever. Why is that? Once he started, he had no control whatever is because of the physical allergy. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in, in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. This is an amazing phenomenon of willpower that I don't believe would work for a compulsive overeater. I have seen dry drunks in AA. I am not in AA. I, I'm I'm not an alcoholic. I wish I was. I would have done a lot better with women if I was an alcoholic than as a compulsive overeater, trust me. But the bottom line is, is that you will see guys in AA and gals in AA that have not touched a drop of liquor in 20, 30 years. But they're miserable. They're just miserable. And that's why I love when we get into the second step came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Notice it doesn't say came to believe that a power greater than myself restored me to uh, sobriety. Notice it doesn't say came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. It says came to believe uh, in a power greater that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. Sanity is so much more protracted. Sanity is so much more open-ended. The ceiling on sobriety and on abstinence is very, very low. The ceiling on sanity is very, very high. And there's going to be things about sanity that a mere abstinence or a mere sobriety just cannot touch. They just can't touch it. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. So let's take a look at what we're reading here, guys. This guy remained bone dry for 25 years. Now there's going to be a lesson here. And the lesson here is that that alone is not gonna cure him. It's not going to, to give him recovery. So if any of you are new, if any of you are thinking, boy, if I could lose X amount of weight, here's what I lived in. This is the fantasy that I lived in. Boy, if I could just remain bone dry from chocolate or Fritos or whatever the hell it was, Chips Ahoy, for X amount of years, my life would be perfect. We're going to prove that that's not true this morning. We're going to show that that is absolutely not the case. And that in life and in recovery, a mere time period or weight loss or both is not sufficient to bring about recovery. It's not sufficient to bring about immunity from that impulse to eat. Let's go further. 
Many fell victim, victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. I have lost weight in my life before recovery and during the time I was here, as many of you have too. And what happens eventually when I'm not doing 10, 11, and 12, and I haven't done nine, and I haven't done eight, and I haven't done four, and I haven't done one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, is I will fall victim to the belief that as my weight loss is not going to be, uh, I'm not gonna gain all my weight back today. I can have a chocolate sundae. I'm not gonna gain all my weight back today so I can have a pizza and I eat whatever that is and I don't gain all the weight back. What happens is eventually I gain more weight than I had ever weighed before because the disease is progressive whether I'm eating or not. Now that's so vital that I'm gonna say it again. The disease is progressing whether I'm eating or not. While I'm sitting here doing a big book study, while I'm sitting here doing the best I can to help every one of you and myself, my disease in the time that I am sitting here is getting worse. Just because I'm engaged in this activity does not mean that my disease has stopped being progressive. So let's continue. Out came his carpet slippers in a bottle. So here he is, he's got the green light. He's got the green light. He has made that million. He has had a successful career. Now out comes his carpet slippers in a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital. Not two years, not two decades, two months. He is so bad that he is in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. The disease does not care about anything. It doesn't care how beautiful you are or how wonderful you are or how many people love you. It doesn't care how many people depend on you. It doesn't care how many people call you mama or grandma or daddy or uncle or brother or sister doesn't care how many people call you when they need some advice. This disease will strike you down because it is unmerciful. This disease does not know mercy. He, he, he tried to regulate his drinking for a while. In other words, he tried to stay on a diet making several trips to the hospital meantime. In other words, there were times when he was so bad and he could not control his drinking that he was hospitalized as the result of his drunkenness. He was drowning in Lake Twinkie. He was gasping for air in the ditch of Doritos. He couldn't breathe. He couldn't function because his overwhelming desire for food, for liquor, for what have you, was killing him. 
and there was no end to it in sight. He was literally drowning in Lake Twinkie. Then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. A little later on, not today, a little later on in our process, we're going to look in chapter 5 at the ABCs. And A is that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B is that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. Some of you are very wealthy and some of you are not very wealthy. Some of you live day to day and some of you live week to week. And some of you have so much money, you never have to work again. And some of you are in between those extremes. But it doesn't really matter where you're at. The only thing that really matters is this. There is no human power that can relieve your alcoholism. Nothing that is of this earth, money, sex, prestige, power, there is no, poverty, lack of sex, lack of relationships, lack of family. There is nothing that is going to make a difference. The only solution you have is a spiritual one. The only remedy we have to suggest is the 12 steps so that the steps can affect a spiritual awakening, and through the spiritual awakening, the urge to eat will simply not be there. Doesn't matter what you have. I happen to know for a fact, I happen to know for a fact that there is a woman that is regularly in this meeting. I don't think she's here today. I didn't see her name before. Her father is a person who in, was in the newspaper many, many times because of his business success. She lives in California. His success was so great. His success was so overwhelming that he has been in the newspaper hundreds and thousands of times all over the world. All over the world. He is a known name. He is in Wikipedia. He is an entity in Wikipedia for his wealth and his vast accomplishments in the business world. Okay? I, I'm not going to mention his name, obviously. Did it, and, and she is his daughter. Okay? She is his daughter. Doesn't save her. It doesn't save her. It doesn't make one bit of difference. I also happen to know for a fact there's people on this line that struggle financially that are in that survival mode all the time. I am one of those people. I don't have a great deal of wealth. I'm 66, I've got to continue working. If I don't work, I'm in trouble. I get social security, yes, but I can't, you can't live on that. So it doesn't matter. Everything money could buy was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. I'm at the top of 33. Every attempt failed. Your diets fail. Remember in the doctor's opinion, it says that all other methods had failed completely? I don't know what it is, but we are the last house on the block and that there is something in the mind of an addict 
not just food, not just liquor, not just drugs, not just love, not just sex or gambling. For some reason, every wrong answer imaginable has to be examined by the addict before the right answer, the big book of AA and, and the steps and sponsorship and meetings and all that will be examined. I had to examine every wrong answer on the planet. I was a Weight Watchers king. I was a Tops king. I don't know if Tops is all over the country. I don't think most of you have Tops where you live. It's take off pounds sensibly. But Tops was very big in Chicago. It was a Milwaukee, Wisconsin uh, outfit, Tops. I don't know if they even still have it. But I was a Tops teenage king. I was a Weight Watcher king. I was a lifetime membership of, of uh, Weight Watchers. Now, I'm not knocking Weight Watchers. I'm not knocking Tops. They're wonderful. They're fantastic. For some people, it works like a charm. Didn't work for me. Why didn't it work for me? It would work temporarily, yeah. But it doesn't work over the long haul. Why? Because I have a twist of the mind and an allergy of the body. And those things are not going to make a difference to a dude like me because I, I am different. I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. Top of 33. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. Dead. His money didn't buy him two more minutes. Didn't buy him another second. And it isn't going to buy me another second. If I go back into the food, I will be dead. I may not have another recovery left in me, but based on my age and based on everything, I don't think I would make it another two, three years in the food. I would be dead. When I eat heavily salted foods or fatty foods, I have an edema, a swelling in my lower legs. I'm not going to lift up my leg here, but not that I could. But I have swelling that is very profuse and very painful. And what happens is I start to get little ulcers in the skin where the pus runs out. But what's happening internally is even more devastating. My blood pressure will shoot way up. I become very, very precariously dangerous for a stroke. I also have um, AFib. Your heart beats like this, mine beats like, like that. I have atrial fibrillation. Now again, I am not expressing an opinion on artificial sweeteners. I don't have an opinion on artificial sweeteners, but I'm compelled to share this with you. That same cardiologist that I saw yesterday told me right to my face, diet, drinks, I don't want to mention specific, diet, drinks are going to kill you because you have an effed up electrical system to the heart. And those artificial sweeteners interfere with the electrical impulses to the heart and they will cause you sudden death. I got it and I stopped it. Those artificial sweeteners were killing me. 
those artificial sweeteners with ingredients that I cannot even pronounce. And it brought me back. I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you. I am not endorsing these products. I'm not expressing a negative opinion about these products. They are like Tampax. These are products I do not use. They are products that are inappropriate for me. But for many, they are completely appropriate and they are fine. I cannot use those products. They are a major reason why I developed atrial fibrillation of the heart. Not atrial fibrillation of the ankle, not atrial fibrillation of my hair, not atrial fibrillation of my ear, atrial fibrillation of the heart. And I had to really work my steps and I had to turn further to the program because what I did not know, and again, I'm just talking about me and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but again, I may not be talking about anything that applies to you. What I had to learn was I was as addicted to those products, those artificial sweeteners, as I was to sugar and flour and fried food and all the things that I really loved. And they were killing me. They were absolutely killing me. So I had to rededicate myself to a new plan of consuming anything. And they could not include those things. And I had to do something that was very uncomfortable. I had to go home and throw a bunch of it out. I, I just bought it. I just loaded up on it. I couldn't consume it anymore. I had to get rid of it. It was killing me. Top of page 33. Okay, wait, wait, before I continue, I better make this point. This disease is permanent. It is progressive. It is fatal. But let's take a look at something that you may be thinking. You may be thinking if you're anything like me and you're not really out of that food fog yet. You're still on the struggle bus. You're still on that struggle bus. And you may be thinking, what the hell? I'm gonna, we're all gonna die anyway, what's, what's the point? So, so I'll live maybe another seven years or I'll live maybe another 10 years. What, so what's the difference, right? A thousand years from now, I'll be dead approximately a thousand years. You're right. But let's take a look at something that's, that's more horrible than dying. And that is never having lived. This description of the man struggling with alcohol and he makes a deal with himself and he's going to drink and he retires from business and he, he, he finally gets to that point and he busts out the carpet slippers and he busts out the, uh, the um, what do you call it, the bottle. And he's drinking and he's trying to control it and he ends up in the hospital. Guys, that's not life. He's of service to no one. All he can do is think about drinking and not drinking, drinking and not drinking. That's not living. Yes, we're all gonna die. There's no question that we're all gonna die. The real sad part, Billy Shakespeare, who was another Bill, Billy Shakespeare said, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words it might have been. 
what might you have done with the time that you had had you not been in the food? What could you have become? Where could your life have gone had you not been in the food? The food is a rapacious predator and it will rob you of every shred of dignity that you could possibly have. And it will rob you of the most precious relationships in your life, the relationship with God Almighty, our Creator, however, whoever, whatever you decide that is for you, whether it's nature, whether it's a star, whether it's Lake Michigan, whether it's the God of the Catholics or the Protestants or the Jews or the Muslims, or it's the God of whoever, doesn't matter as long as it's a power greater than you. But the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words, it might have been. There are worse things than death. And the worst of all possibilities is never to have lived. This is not a dress rehearsal. There is no unlimited amount of time and there's no do-overs. July of 2020 is behind us forever. Not one second of it can be returned. It's over and done. It is the 1st of August, 2020. Never will we ever have to have July again, nor can we if we want to. And so as time goes, this is the way to maximize our lives. This is the way to live until we die. When I was a little boy, not all, but most of the people that my dad knew were people who came out of the Nazi concentration camps. And they were placed in a DP camp. DP stands for displaced persons. And they came either to America, to England, and to Palestine, because there was no Israel yet, to Palestine, to America, to England, and a lot went to Canada. Some went to Mexico. And they were placed there, and they were, they, were, uh, they, were, they were citizens after a while, after they got their citizenship, and they would grab my cheek, and they would pinch my cheek, and they would grab my face, and they would kiss my face, and they would say, live until you die. Now, I believe that live until you die meant that I ate every Almond Joy bar I could get my hands on because that was living. It took me decades to figure out that ain't living. That's mobile death. I'm walking around, but I'm dead. Life, living, is the recovery, not the illness. Top of page 33. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here is a man who at 55 years found he was just where he left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We are pickles, guys. If you are a compulsive overeater like me, 
you started out your life as a cucumber. Now, maybe you lasted as a cucumber for two weeks, two minutes, 20 years. Some of you are adult onset. I talk to people all the time. They didn't start feeling the ravages of this until they were in their 20s and 30s. And there's one woman I know that lives in in uh, the southeastern part of the country, she didn't even start noticing a problem with food until she was in her mid 40s. And all of a sudden, by the time she was 60, she was over 300 pounds. So it, it doesn't matter when. We are pickles, okay? We could be cucumbers for a while, and then once we turn into a pickle, there's no way to turn you back. Once you're a pickle, you're going to remain a pickle for the rest of your life. And as far as we know, there is nothing that can be done to make you a cucumber ever again. There is no way possible to reverse this process. It can be arrested through the steps, but it cannot be cured. Commencing to drink, I'm back on 33, after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time. Now notice it says a short time, as bad as ever. It doesn't say after a time. It doesn't say after a long time. It says after a short time. It takes this long. Because once that demon is awakened inside of me, once that allergy flares up to a certain level, it's like, tonight we ride. And then I'm going to look at that buffet and I'm going to look at that whatever and I'm just going to go crazy. Because I can't see the forest through the trees. I can't possibly know... <sighs> where this is going to end once it's begun, because I have lost complete control. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, no lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. I had to let it go. I came in in 1979. I wouldn't let many of them even talk to me, I came in February 2nd of 1979, and I went to meetings pretty much every day. That's how I, I'm, I'm very extreme, but my friends were pressuring the daylights out of me to go. So I went like five, six days a week to meetings. I ate my way to the meetings, I prayed for a Russian airstrike during the meetings, and I ate my way home, okay? But I had this lurking notion that I was gonna be good instead of bad, six days a week. But on Sunday morning, I was gonna to go to a breakfast buffet in Skokie, Illinois, not far from where I lived in Chicago, where they had all the good deli on their buffet. And I was gonna get in there and eat everything I wanted on Sunday. And then Sunday turned into Saturday and Sunday, and then it turned into Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then it turned into Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So you see where we're going with this? I had to let go completely, and that took a long time. I don't want to tell you how long it took. 
because I don't want to scare you. Let it go. We got to let it go. I had to let it go. I had to let it go. I couldn't hang on anymore. I'm either in or I'm out. I'm doing it or I'm not. I'm either going to eat, I'm going to die, or I'm going to live and I'm not going to eat. I, there's no middle ground for a Harlan Grabowski. There's just no middle ground for me. Middle of 33, young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop as he did on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop. That's very true. And hardly one of them, because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired. Now, there are people that use the terminology mental obsession. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. I like to stick to big book terminology. And the term mental obsession does not appear in the big book until the story's in the back. And that was a change. The mental obsession is 12 and 12 language. Mental twist is big book language. It's the same thing. Mental twist means my mind is twisted in a way that is peculiar to a compulsive overeater. I think about food and eating differently. I think of it as something that's a reward. I think of it as something that is going to be a good thing. My friends don't think of it at all. It's nothing to them. They couldn't care less. Food means absolutely zero to them. If you said to most of my friends, dinner tonight has been canceled. There will not be dinner tonight. You can eat breakfast and lunch and no dinner. They would shrug their shoulders and say, okay. But if you're going to tell me that dinner is canceled, if you're going to tell me that dinner is not going to be served, now I'm going to have a problem because I'm going to be going meshuggah. Meshuggah is a Yiddish word for crazy. I'm going to be going crazy because I may not be able to eat Fritos and, and candy and all that stuff, but damn, I want my dinner. I mean, I'm eating my dinner, right? So I have a peculiar mental twist. And that's why, why I use that terminology, already acquired. We, will, we find, darn it, because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired, we'll, we'll find he can win out. That doesn't make any sense. Let me go back through the whole sentence. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired, we'll find he can win out. Several of our crowd men of 30 or less have been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. The disease progresses at different speeds in different people. There are some of you that have been 300 pounds. Some of you will never get to 300 pounds. Some of you have been 80 pounds, 90 pounds, because you're anorexic to a certain level. I have a friend of mine uh, who lives in California also, and actually it's the same person, but doesn't matter. In her adult life, she has weighed in the 90s and high 80s because of her anorexia, because of her bulimia, her weight has dipped very low. I would never get to that because I'm not anorexic and I'm not bulimic. I am a compulsive overeater who goes to the morbidly obese side. She is a person who will, if you leave her to her own devices, will go the absolute opposite way. She'll go south rather than north. She'll go south, as, as some of us have. 
we've gone south with weight rather than north. It's the same thing, it's just opposite sides of the same coin. And when you hear on vision or you, you see in, in, in uh, OA, when they talk about you know, the definition of abstinence, refraining from compulsive overeating or compulsive overeating behaviors, and so you are approaching, you are at or approaching a healthy body weight. When they're talking about healthy, or excuse me, when they're talking about compulsive eating behaviors, they're not talking necessarily about sitting in front of the television and eating or eating in the car, although for many, those are verboten. What they're talking about specifically is um, anorexia and bulimia. You know, the anorexic doesn't compulsively overeat like that. They starve themselves. They get an actual high from not eating. That makes them very, very high. They also, there are three, not all anorexics are bulimics, but there are three types of bulimia that are prevalent. The first type of bulimia is regurgitation bulimia, where the person suffering from this will eat massive quantities of food, and then they will force themselves to vomit it up, and then they will eat more food, and they will go through a cycle of vomiting, eating, vomiting, eating, vomiting, eating. And that is very devastating. Karen Carpenter, the famous singer, was this type, and she died at the age of 34 at 94 pounds. Her heart blew apart because her electrolytes were so screwed up. The other two forms of bulimia are uh, exercise bulimia. They, these are people, I have a friend of mine lives in Colorado, and she's not with us this morning. She's taking a fifth step, but she is an exercise bulimia. And she will actually exercise seven, eight, nine hours at a crack. And she will cause great harm to her skeletal system, her muscular system, her, her ligaments, her, you know, a lot of physical pain. And that's how they purge off the food. And then the third type of bulimia is laxative bulimia. There are people who abuse laxatives. Actually, we had somebody talk about that on Vision just yesterday, I think. Uh, there was somebody who talked about going into their mother's dresser drawer and stealing the laxatives and eating them and, and having a kind of a crappy day as a result of it. Anyway, I'm not, but these, these are manifestations of the same disease. They are not different diseases. They are the same disease. That's the point I really want to make. These are the behaviors that we're really talking about when it says compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors. Yeah, eating in the car is a problem for me. I don't eat standing up. Um, I, I do eat in front of the television because I live alone and I don't want to sit at a table and look at the wall. So I look at whatever's on TV. I live alone. I wish I didn't. I, I, I wish I didn't live alone, but until I, you know, whatever, until that changes, I do have the TV on while I'm eating because I don't want to sit in a quiet room and just eat by myself. But these are the behaviors we're talking about, the bulimia, the anorexia, things like that. Bottom of 33, guys, to be gravely affected, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time nor take the quantities some of us have. So we have this idea that if you are a drunk, let's just use alcoholism because it, it, it will allow us to be a little more objective. So maybe you have an idea in your head about a guy in a trench coat and he's drinking whiskey in a, in a bottle, but there's a bag around the bottle and he smells and he's very obviously drunk. 
And you think that that's what all alcoholics look like. They don't. There are alcoholics in the boardroom and there are alcoholics coming to fix your appliances and there are alcoholics in the job. Not all alcoholics go sleep in the park drinking whiskey and, and, and you know, cheap liquor from a bag. That's not all alcoholics and not all compulsive overeaters weigh 300 pounds. Not all compulsive overeaters, you know, are anything. We come in various shapes. We come in various sizes. If you go to a convention of Overeaters Anonymous, you will see people of all shapes and all sizes. And as time goes on, I hope more colors because we have really failed the black community. We have failed the African-American community and the Hispanic community and the Native American community. We have failed them to a very great degree. Now, I'm very, very pleased that there's 100 of you on the line right now. There's 99 of you on the line right now. That makes me very, very happy. But it would be so much more wonderful if we were more different colors, more different backgrounds, more varied races and creeds and, 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 and backgrounds. Because right now, we're really not serving a lot of the minority communities as well as we could. So maybe that's something to think about. Maybe that's something to sort of put up here and say, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe there's a better way than what we're doing. So just put that up there. But when you go to the conventions, you see people, we're very different, very, very different. But inside, we're the same. We have the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. Let's continue. This is particularly true of women. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with the symptoms <clears throat> see large numbers of potential alcoholics among young people everywhere, but try and get them to see it. True when this book was first published, but a 2014 US-Canada membership survey showed about 12% of AAs were 30 and under. And when I go to the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club where they have AA meetings there all day, every day, you see a lot of teenagers, you see a lot of kids coming in. Now, a lot of them are nudged by the judge and a lot of them are DUIs and stuff like that, but some of them are coming in because they have really hit a very vicious bottom because of their alcoholism. Top of 34. As we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our own willpower. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more becoming serious drinkers again later. What is he describing here? Come on guys, you're familiar with this. He's describing the dieting cycle. He's describing the cycle that we have danced the dance of for a very, very long time. The dance of the diet, the dance of the fad diet. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, 
you may be yet be a potential alcoholic, we think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Food is even less. I doubt you could do it for more than a you know, few weeks. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. And this is something that really applies to the compulsive overeater too, isn't it? Because we have been on that diet cycle for a very long time before we come to OA. And OA is usually that last house on the block. And again, as I said a while ago when we were starting this session, for some crazy reason, my brain has to examine every wrong answer, every implausible solution to this. The I'm gonna eat whatever I want till I'm sick of it diet, Somebody came to me a number of years ago and they said they had a child who was a compulsive overeater and they were way overweight and all they want to do is eat french fries, pizza, and chicken fingers. If it's not french fries, pizza, or chicken fingers, they will not eat it. And they said to me, he said to me that what they decided to do was let him eat that commodity until he's sick of it. And they wanted, an, or he wanted to know, I don't know why I keep saying that, he wanted to know what I thought of that. And I said, I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's a dreadful idea because those foods are triggering the physical allergy and they're giving your son the effect. You got to cut him off from that and, sh and, and really cut him off from it and make him feel his feelings. But I don't know whether what they did, I, I have no idea, but Continuing to eat candy and continuing to eat ice cream, are you kidding me? That's gonna help a person? Not in this world, maybe, maybe in, in the twilight zone that I talked about before, but not in this world. If eating Almond Joy bars cured me, I would have been cured when I was seven years old, six years old. It just doesn't seem to work. And I, if, if, if uh, Mars Candy gave out gold stars for great customers, I'd have plaques all over my wall over here from the Mars Chocolate Company, customer of the year to Harlan Grabowski of Chicago, Illinois. I'd have plaque upon plaque upon plaque. I would, I would have been gold <laughs> kuma sum laude, kuma sum laude, customer of the year from the Mars or Hershey or Nestle Candy Company, they would have given me a free trip to Disney World. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Middle of 34. It's a good thing we're going to be done soon because I think my brain is fried. So I'm sorry I'm a little crazy today. I think it's the heat. It was 116 degrees yesterday. I was driving down the street and I looked up at the bank and it said 120. I don't know where they're getting their statistics. I just heard on the radio like one second before that it was 116. And they said specifically in Scotts, they said it was 118 in Phoenix, 116 in Scottsdale, which is usually the case. We're about one or two degrees cooler than Phoenix Airport for whatever reason. I guess it's elevation or something. I don't know. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Now, this next sentence is very, very key. 
We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. What? Yeah. I had to really want to stop. For a long time, I didn't want to stop. You see, I didn't know that there was a life beyond the food. I thought that if I did eat, I'd die, but if I didn't eat, I'd die. Because when I stopped eating certain things, because I was dieting, when I stopped eating candy, when I stopped eating deli meat, and I stopped eating french fries, my life sucked. It sucked. You think to yourself back when you were a kid, if you, I don't know, or when you were first in, in recovery, and they said to you, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. They were right. When I don't eat those things, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel jealousy better. I feel crushes on girls better. I feel like killing myself better. I feel like killing you better. Life was miserable without the food. Miserable. But I had to have a desire to stop. And where did that desire come from? From understanding that my life sucked the wazoo. I couldn't pay my bills. Maybe your bills are paid. I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit in a chair. I couldn't lay in a bed and breathe. I had to sleep in a, in a, a lazy boy. I broke furniture. I got stuck in cars. I couldn't get in certain cars. I couldn't get out of cars. I couldn't go to the movies because I couldn't fit in the seat. Even at big and tall stores, they often didn't have garments to fit me. I didn't have underwear on. I had towels shoved between layers of flab. I didn't have male appendage. I was emasculated by this disease physically. I was emasculated emotionally. I was not a man. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. I lived in shame. I lived in fear. I lived in anger. I lived in physical discomfort. I lived in fear of people. I lived in fear of life. I lived in fear of death. I lived in fear of pain. I lived in fear of fear. God didn't put me on this earth to be, to be that person. I know that now. I know that now. I didn't know it then. God doesn't bring people to this world to make them suffer like that. And my life was a veil of tears. Today, it's a good life. But I had to desire to stop. And without that desire to stop, I wouldn't have taken action after action after action that I did not yet even believe in. But I saw that it was working in other people. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. I hear this all the time. People say, food is my drug of choice. Food is my drug of no choice. Because once I, once I took the bite, the bite took me. Once I took the mouthful of potato chips, the mouthful of potato chips took me. Cocaine is my drug of choice. I can choose not to use it, and I never have. I've never even smoked a joint. 
But food, that's my drug of no choice. There is no choosing food. I take the mouthful of food and the mouthful of food takes me. Many of us felt we had plenty of character where there was a tremendous urge to cease forever. Yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. It is a program of action. It is a program of action. There is no needing or wanting necessary. Whether you need this and want this or not, if you take the action, you shall have it. If you don't take the action, you shall not. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others, he would surely drink again, and with us to drink is to die. It's an action program. How then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us. The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. So what we're gonna be examining, not next week, because next week I'm doing region three, you're invited to join us in Region 3. Just go to oaphoenix.org or oaregion3, and you will find how to register for this convention on Zoom. But this thinking that leads to the relapse is the crux of the problem, and we're going to be examining this as we go on. Now, we're going to do one more paragraph because I want to start out with Jim in two weeks. In two weeks, I want to start out with Jim. So let's finish the next paragraph, and then when we're done with it, we'll open it up for questions and answers. I hope the questions and the answers match. We'll just see. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink. Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? There were a lot of people who looked at my behaviors and they didn't understand what the hell was going on. I complained constantly. I didn't have a girlfriend. I, I, I couldn't walk. I, could, I have bubby arms to this day, you know, and I've lost over 500 pounds. There's only one way this is coming off, and that's through a surgeon's knife. And I'm, I've had 29 hours to plastic surgery. I'm done. But then they'd see me eating pizza. Then they'd see me eating a corn dog. Then they'd see me eating French fries. Then they'd see me eating candy. And they're wondering to themselves, is this guy out of his freaking mind? 
is this guy out of his ever-loving mind? Why would somebody who's had that torture do that? Why would we do these things to ourselves? Because food was the solution to the problem. It wasn't the problem. What was the problem? The problem was the buildup of human emotion. <sighs> the fear, the jealousy, the anger, the frustration, all the various things in life that every human being faces were solved by eating candy, solved by eating certain things like Doritos or pizza or whatever it is for you. And food became a solution. That's what explains the insanity. If you're sponsoring and your sponsees are looking for an answer to why they did what they did, the best answer is because you're a compulsive overeater. But more specifically, you did what you did in search of relief from the intenable, searing, unrelenting, unforgiving pain of not eating. And the eating that was destroying you became the only solution that you knew. And against hope, against every odd, against any kind of common sense, you hoped against hope that this Nestle's Crunch Bar wouldn't kill you or wouldn't make you gain weight. And so you hoped against hope that was true, but you needed a Nestle's Crunch Bar right now because you couldn't stand the fear any longer. You couldn't stand the jealousy. You couldn't stand the pain of not eating anymore. And Dr. Silkworth says, we are restless, irritable, and discontent unless we can again experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by drinking the liquor, drinking the alcohol. We drink that alcohol, we pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink that way again, and we will repeat that cycle over and over again, the mind telling us the food makes perfect sense while the body ensures it does not. Why did you drink? because you couldn't stand the pain of not drinking. Why did you eat? Because you can't stand the pain of not eating. And there's only one other substitute on the face of this planet that will help you, and that is the steps, because that will bring about a spiritual awakening, and that will make the pain go away. You ate in search of relief from the pain of not eating. You work the steps, you already feel better, and that urge to eat the food is simply not there. More in two weeks. Let's get to the questions and the answers, and I'll